I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. Today, we're going to take a fascinating look at seasonal investing. We know that seasonal investing trends impact all sorts of segments of the economy and markets. They impact revenues, earnings, spending, flows, and returns. Rodrigo Gordillo from Resolve Asset Management Global is co-hosting with me today. We're also very pleased to welcome our guest advisor panelist, Kim Inglis, investment advisor and portfolio manager at Raymond James Canada. Joining us to dive into seasonal investing is Brooke Thackeray, research analyst at Horizons ETFs Canada. He has over 20 years of experience in the investment industry. The strategies have been featured in newspapers, magazines. He's frequently interviewed on TV and radio, and he's a regular on BNN Bloomberg. He's also the president of Alpha Mountain Investments, which publishes investment reports and books. The most well-known of these is Thackeray's Investment Guide, which comes out annually and provides the most insightful analysis of all seasonal trends and actionable ways investors can look at exploiting those seasonal trends. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Brooke, Kim, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me on the show. Looking forward to it. To kick things off, please give us some background on your investment careers, what you do, and how you got into the business in the first place. Go ahead, Kim. I'll let you take this first. I, I have been in the industry since 2006. Uh, great, great timing, you know, just before the financial crisis. Um, I've been an advisor almost the entire time. I started in the uh, U.S. trading department at a previous firm of mine. Uh, but then became an advisor a year year or so later. Um, got my portfolio manager designation in 2011, I believe. Um, and what I do now is I, I manage uh, money for high net worth clients, ultra high net worth clients. Uh, my clients are all over Canada and the U.S. as well, um, focusing on you know the whole the whole gamut from investment management to financial planning, estate planning, tax planning, uh, all of that sort of advanced planning in there as well. Um, I also do a lot of media, so I've I've had newspaper columns in all the major newspapers across Canada, lots of TV, uh, now podcasts. <laughs> so that's that's basically that. Awesome. Yeah, a little bit of background on myself. Um, I started back in the 1990s in the, on the sell side of things and uh, worked for a few firms back then. And back then when I was, when I was uh, you know, out there, you know, getting my feet going here a little bit, you know, I, I noticed some trends in the marketplace from a seasonal perspective. It's something that I really wanted to pursue over time and started to, I wrote my first book actually in 1999 on seasonal investing. Um, then, you know, over time, um, you know, pursued that. And then uh, Ryzen's ETFs came to me in, in uh, 2009 and Don Bilo at the time and asked us to start up a fund with them. And so we started the Ryzen's Seasonal Rotation ETF, which has been going since uh, November 19th, 2009. Uh, it's done quite well. Um, in this period, I've been writing a book every year as well uh, on, on the different seasonal trends in the marketplace, whether it's stocks, bonds, commodities, et cetera. Uh, you know, I, I do frequent the media as well, 
uh, try and get out the news and uh, you know try and give some people an extra advantage in looking at the market from a seasonal perspective. Before we get into it about seasonal investing, I want to make a point that the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And looking at the chart for um, HAC, the Horizon Seasonal Rotation ETF, uh, the ETF that you, Brooke, provide research and portfolio guidance on, which which also happens to be Horizon's ETF's longest tenured active ETF, is it's pretty apparent that the strategy works quite well. And looking at the blip from March of 2020, I'm just going to throw up the chart. Oh, by the way, yeah, the ETF is actually the longest actively running, actively managed ETF in North America. There's a PIMCO bond fund that was an ETF that was, uh, existed. I'm not sure if it still does or not. But. It, it does, yeah. Is it really? PIMCO one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so there's one other fund, but it's bond. That, that's impressive. That's really impressive. It's impressive that... Seeing any active manager you're not get fired within three years. Oh, there it is. It's a pretty impressive chart. I, I just wanted to bring it up because looking at, at from the beginning, uh, November of 2009 until uh, today, uh, it looks like we had, you know, the blip of 2020 in there, which is the big drawdown that you see in 2020, but uh, unavoidable as it was. But what's I think what's what I was particularly impressed by, Brooke, was the way that the trend has resumed back to its previous trend line. And uh, that's, that's, that's pretty darn impressive. And I, I think you just recently hit a new high too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's, uh, the fund's done very well. It hasn't suffered the same amount of uh, drawdowns as the, the markets overall, uh, which, which has been good. Of course, we did get struck with COVID like uh, uh, everybody else a bit, but uh, we have been able to come back to that, reach new high as well. And, uh, you know, close to an all-time high right now. But even you look there in 2011, 2018, yeah. there was basically nothing, <laughs> no, no downside at all. So that's, that's excellent. That's kind of proof, proof in the pudding of, of a consistent strategy. Absolutely. Very, very impressive, Brooke. So kudos to you and your research and guidance. So let me, uh, let me bring this back, Brooke, because when we were offline, you were saying how we had met at the Alma Foundation event a few years back. <clears throat> but the reality is that we met when like literally the first month you were starting to to be an analyst for the HAC ETF and you came to the office at the time at Blackmont Capital and sat me down you gave me a book and started telling me this uh this tea leaf story about <laughs> being able to oh, predict the future returns year in <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time I mean this is just you know a disaster waiting to happen this it's changed too much. Whatever alpha we think we have is going to be arved out. And I think um, what was interesting over the years, because I'm a quant, um, I have added a wide variety of strategies to our sub-advisory uh, portfolios. We also subadvise in at Horizons. And seasonality is clearly part of our roster now. And it took me years to realize um, that the reason seasonality works in large part and continues to work is because there's so many naysayers. Uh, so why don't like, do we, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the beginning journey, talking to people about seasonal patterns and what type of pushback you got back then? Is that, has that changed today? Sure. Yeah. Let's, let's go back to 1999 when I wrote my first book on this, uh, because back then it was the, the go-go years for the market. So we were looking at the NASDAQ, the tech bubble that was taking place. The only thing that was counted at the time was 
eyeballs on screens type of thing. Uh, so, you know, when I was talking about seasonality back then, people thought, okay, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to talk about this. This, this is kind of crazy. And, you know, uh, over the years, we, we've seen some changes take place. And uh, even back when we started the fund back in 2009, it really wasn't widely accepted at the time. But since that time, you know, uh, over the last uh, decade or so, we've seen more and more acceptance of, of seasonality. You know, you flip on the TV, whether it's uh, CNBC or BNN or whatever it is, you'll see other people talking about seasonality and more quant uh, models and hedge funds have actually included it as a, uh, as one of their screens as well, because it's, 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 it's worked quite well actually in, in, in the markets and seasonality has always been used from an investment standpoint in the commodities market. It just really wasn't used that much uh, from uh, the stock side of things. And, you know, back in the 1990s, that was because the market had, hadn't really been parsed out into the different sectors. I mean, the S&P gig sectors didn't really come along until 1990. So there wasn't that much data really to, to work with. But, um, you know, I think uh, we've seen more and more parsing of the data. People are really looking at markets very specifically. The ETFs have filled that role as well. So we've seen more product available. So if you want to go into metals and mining, you can get an ETF for that. You want to go into technology, that's easy. You can do that. Whereas back in the 1990s, that wasn't the case. So as the product uh, offerings have kept up, I think more people have realized the, the benefit also of investing on, on a seasonal basis. I think also the big thing too, I think was after the tech wreck uh, uh, in 2000, uh, 2000, I should say, you know, investors start to really question like, what am I, what am I really investing? How, how am I doing this? Back in the 1990s, it was all about fundamentals. You know, everybody's measuring PE ratios and nobody talks about that today. You know, that's not the way the market works. This market's being driven more by macros than anything else. But, you, you know, it's uh, as people became disappointed with some of their fundamental research that just wasn't proving out to, to provide that value, you know, they say, well, I got good company, good PE ratio. It's growing fast. Um, I like this company, but it just wasn't panning out. And, and so more people start to look around for other ways of doing things. And I think that's when they start to really key on seasonal uh, investing and say, look, there is a seasonal trend. Oil does tend to go up at this time of the year. Not all the time, of course, but there are some factors that will drive that. Or the industrial sector will go up at certain times of the year. And so, the, so the, you know, it, it became more accepting and, and, uh, yeah, a lot of people thought like you, Rodrigo, back, you know, a long time ago, like, this is kind of crazy, you know, because uh, this this was new to the markets, but now it's changed. But even now, when I explain seasonality, because we're, the way we deal with seasonality is across a bunch of futures contracts, I don't ever begin with the equity market seasonal patterns, even though they're just as valid in my books today than a commodity seasonal pattern. I start with commodities because it's more intuitive. Right. You can say to somebody, look, there's seasonality in a bunch of asset classes. Let's say commodities, for example. Clearly, there is a cycle of you know, when the crop harvest comes in, when it gets used, when it gets depleted, the prices of, of certain commodities acting at different times. And immediately you'll get a response saying, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But the moment you try to take seasonality into equities or even fixed income, it becomes much more of a wait, sell and may and go away. Why is that? Why, why is that a thing that I can yeah. count on? existing in the future. So how do you explain, let's start with the equity seasonal pattern and why it's a fundamental future driver? Yeah. Okay. So I, I know exactly where you're coming from on that because yeah, people understand the seasonal, because in commodities, a lot, if you're dealing with the soft commodities, they have a seasonality to them. 
Um, and he, oh, I get it. You know, this is shoulder season and high demand. And, 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 you know, a lot of people will think it'll be arbed out, you know, and say, oh, well, you know, people should be able to arb that out. Uh, but, you know, it, it, but you, if you have the right benchmarks to measure against, you can actually take advantage of that. But getting into the, the uh, stock side of things, it becomes a little bit tougher. And I understand where you're coming from on that. Now, how I do that is I, I tell people, really, we call it seasonality, but it's a bit of a misnomer in the name. Like when we were first developing the fund back in 2009, you know, we said, well, what are we going to name this thing? And the first thing I said, it has to have rotation in there. I said, that's a non-negotiable because that's exactly what we're doing. We're renting space in different sectors at different times of the year, basically. So it's, it's rotation. And I said, seasonality has to be there, but it really doesn't define totally what we do because it's seasonality because it repeats itself, uh, you know, on average over long term, it increases your probability, but that's not the driver. The real driver to this is it's really a behavioral approach. So let me give you an example to that. So. Uh, on average, over the long term, it's good to get into the retail sector at towards the end of October and get out in uh, November, at, at the end of November, as Black Friday comes. Now, you say, well, no, no, you should be in the markets for Black Friday. And uh, that's, what you, that's what you should be. But from a seasonal perspective, you want to be in there before everybody else gets in. When everybody else gets in, you want to get out. So when we've invested in the retail sector, we'll get in. As an example, October 27th, we're in the market into that sector through an ETF. And then we actually, in this case, because of the analysis I've done, we have what we call a hard exit. We'd, we'll use technicals to help us get out of positions over time. But with the retail, we actually just exit. And that's because on average, once Black Friday comes out, yeah, the results can be good, bad, or great. But if you take a look at uh, if they're good, the retail sector tends to go down because investors have already played it up. And if they're bad, they go down. And if they're great, yeah, they go up and up by a lot. So on average, it's just better to be out of, of the market, of that sector altogether. So it really is, although we call it seasonal, it really is behavioral. And let me give you one more example that's really topical now. Um, and that would be the energy sector. The energy sector has a strong seasonal period from February 25th, sometimes starting in January, starting January this year, early and it runs into early May and, and can go into June. So why does that exist, first of all? It exists because, and you know, a lot of people you know, have trouble with this, but it, it's not the reason why it exists. Uh, it makes it a good opportunity. It's because of investors' behavior. But anyhow, the reason it exists is you find that uh, the, the refineries start shutting down in uh, uh, late winter, early spring. They do all their maintenance to switch over from uh, uh, winter gas to summer gas. And then we come up to the driving season, which is the, where most gas is consumed in the Northern Hemisphere. And uh, that is the biggest draw on oil. So you've had this shutdown and you're pulling the oil through the pipeline, basically. So, or, and, and investors know this. Uh, but so that what they want to do is they want to be invested in the energy sector just before driving season. That's when oil is going to get bought. No, that's the best time is not just before driving season. The best time is actually in January or February. And you want to start making exit plans in May um, and while the, the driving season is actually taking place. Now, with energy, there's huge exogenous variables. Seasonal is not the only thing that drives this, obviously. And ceteris previs, it, can, it adds a lot of value. And, but with the commodities, we do find them, you know, there's, the, the outside variables can be huge. And obviously, we're seeing that now. In, in the strong seasonal period for oil, we're seeing the energy sector benefit from this. 
uh, as well. But it really comes down to, down to that behavior. And if I had to sum it up, it would be that you want to get in before everybody else gets in and you want to get out before everybody else get, gets out. That's it. Buy on the, it's not, sell on the news, right? Basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's almost, uh, almost a contrarian approach to things in many respects. I, I find when I talk to uh, investors about seasonality, the, the, often the comment that you get is, is well, isn't it market timing? And, you know, everybody knows that, you know, market timing in and of itself, uh, the d definition is pretty much a mugs game, but, you know, seasonality, as you've described it, is essentially that. It's, mo it's more, you know, overweighting, underweighting, doing things when others are not when when others are not um you know and 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 doing things that way it's not completely exiting um you know the entire portfolio and trying to get back in and that kind of thing it's more it's more it's more a rotation as you say yeah i mean the the whole thing with the the market timing uh unless you're just buying the s&p 500 and holding it forever and never doing anything you're doing some market time along the way i'm sorry to say that's just that's what you're doing even if you say well i'm looking at fundamentals and I'm adjusting on fund, you know, your market timing, it's just varying degrees of it. And I think the market timing that's bad is emotional market timing. You know, when you go, oh, I think the market's overvalued. I should be getting out. You know, there's all oh, the shoeshine boy or something or whatever it is. And uh, that's, or I think I need to make this call and move over here just because. But when you're running a system and you've got parameters set up in place to what you should and shouldn't do and you've already established, what you're going to do uh, within those parameters, that's really not market timing because now you're following a discipline basically. And this uh, seasonality actually is one of the coolest systems in the world because it's there's no other discipline I know of that actually has an exit date, okay? So, yeah, you know, and I, I, I uh, you know, went down to the marketing department one time and said, hey, I got a great strategy, a great, you know, logo for this fund. It's they said, what is it? I said, it's never wrong for long. <laughs> so when we're wrong, you know, we, right. we're going to be out, right? Yeah. They said, no, nah, we'll, we'll skip that one. So Martin, just go back. <laughs> what, I, what I always find interesting about seasonality, you know, there's multiple factors that we look at internally for our sub strategies and it's value, it's uh, trend, it's mean reversion and, uh, and carry, right? But all of those tend to be reactive, right? In fact, the vast majority of active strategies looking at PE, you're looking at things to change in order to then update your portfolio. Seasonality is really the only one that's forward-looking. That's saying, regardless of what's happening contemporaneously, we are going to make these bets in these dates every single year going forward. And I, I know that you do a little bit of technical analysis here and like to get in to get out, but roughly speaking, it is truly the only one. This is why I meant by the tea leaf thing at the time, but, that you are, you are not doing it reactively, you are doing it proactively. And I think that is truly a unique spot for seasonal investing that in a way is a great diversifier for the, um, the reactive portfolios that might just get it wrong or get whipsawed. You have a very, very strong conviction, you have years of data, and you're able to, um, to move forward with it. So I find that very, very interesting. Um, for this particular strategy. You're right. I don't think there is anything, any other strategy that I know of that has a similar um, kind of forward-looking technical. Approach. Yeah, I, I, I've but read into Why don't you tell us a little bit about the technical aspect too? Oh, sure. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, first of all, I write a newsletter and the byline on it is know your, know your exit before you get in, basically. And, and obviously there's some flexibility as, as far as that goes. 
Um, and uh, just before Rodrigo's book, uh, Rodrigo, before I address that uh, too, it's we're really ro rotating, as I said earlier, but uh, we're never married to positions. That's the other thing too. You can never uh, get married to a position. And knowing that you're going to be out, you have to be out at a certain time, approximately, you're more likely not to let yourself become attached to a position. To give you an example of that, um, you know, for instance, uh, ETF I worked with HAC was invested in gold. We went into gold in December and silver, uh, bullion and gold miners at the time. And, you know, look, it was doing well. So, uh, and what we'll do is we'll, we have windows. So we'll go into a sector a, a month to six weeks early, uh, before it's average start date. It, it, some, some discrepancy on that. Sometimes it's shorter, sometimes a little bit longer, depending on what the investment is. And the same thing on the exit. So we have a little bit longer as well, so, or we don't even have to get in really, especially if it's a subsector and it's not performing well, if it's not outperforming the market, doesn't meet the technical criteria, we just won't even go in or we'll get in. And if it starts to underperform, we'll get out. So we establish all these parameters overall, but so we were in gold and, uh, and silver and, you know, we, we, we held on to it longer past its seasonal period. And we said, here's the date we have to be out raise stops, raise stops. And then finally we, we exited the position. We said, goodbye, sorry, we have to leave you. <laughs> you know, you're outside our mandate window and we can't hold you at this time. Uh, we can't make that discretionary call against the mandate. Although I think it's a fantastic position even now, but that, that's exactly what takes place. So the parameters that we're using on a technical basis, a lot of them have to do with price momentum. Because our strategy, the average hold is two to three months. Uh, I'd say three months on average for sectors of the market. So there's two real uh, focuses for seasonality. One is a six-month cycle, uh, which you referred to earlier on, which would be the sell in May, but it's a bit more than that. And the other one is the different sectors of the market. And the, you know, each sector of the market, whether it's technology or I just mentioned gold, or it could be you know banking. They, they tend to do well at certain times of the year because of some causational factors that come along and tend to give a higher probability for that sector to perform well at that time of the year. And so we establish that. We'll say, well, there's six weeks out uh, approximately. And if the sector's oversold, as an example, on uh, we'll use RSIs and also full stochastic oscillator, which is to most people, one of the most not usable in uh, methods of doing anything because it gets whipsawed all over. But for us, it does provide value. And uh, because our uh, uh, position is, is our window to buy is relatively small. And if it becomes oversold uh, on a full stochastic oscillator basis, our RSI as well, and then starts to improve its relative price performance, we'll actually take an initial position early within our, what we call a pre-buy window. And so now we take a, and then we, we're legging into the market at that point. And there are a lot of people ask and say, oh, you know, what about averaging down? You know, what about... And I say, you know, for the average person, the way they average down now, it's a terrible idea because you go in and you go, look, it got cheaper. I'm going to buy more, which is just kind of crazy. You know, it's, you know, um, <laughs> you know, it's like Kim referring to market timing earlier. You know, that's not what you wanted to do. You just don't want it to say, hey, it's got cheap. But for us, it, when we're legging in and most people do that, you know, on the institutional side as well, so we'll take a one third position or a half position and then take further positions, even if it goes down, because we've already established that parameter ahead of time and said, here's what our target position is. Here are the parameters to actually buy and sell on this. But we really, and, and, and our, our methodology really, so now we're in, we've used the technical analysis. We've, we've got, we started liking into position. We'll increase the position. 
And, but if it starts to break down and underperform, we'll just exit the position. We just go, okay, this isn't working. To give you an example of that would be technology. So the technology has a strong seasonal period that uh, um, one of the smaller seasonal periods is from early December into, into January. And the position was actually working at the time in December, but then started to fall apart right towards the end of December. And we said it on, on a relative basis. So we actually look a lot. We do more uh, analysis on the relative strength basis. When I say relative strength, I'm not talking about relative strength indexes, relative strength between the security and the actual benchmark as well. And if you're underperforming the S&P 500 TSX, you know, why are you there? You know, so, and, and so we'll actually establish that. We'll, and it's easy for us if the sector's not working because we'll just rotate out of the sector back into the benchmark if there's not another sector that's lined up to go. And a lot of people have problems because when they exit a position, they go, okay, now what do I do? I got cash and I don't want that cash. So I shouldn't have gotten out. That's not the way we look at it at all. If it's time to get out because of the, something's breaking down, we roll back into the market as a hiding spot, so to speak. And then we roll from yeah. there back into a sector when it, it becomes available. I have a question for you. When you hear about people talk about seasonality, some people will include in presidential election cycles in there. Is that something that you factor in as well or or don't consider, you know, over the long run, you know, whether it makes any difference or not or or what have you? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I'm a little bit careful with this, Kim. I, You know, it's... Uh... And I can talk about a little bit about this here now too, but there is some truth to it because once again, it's behavioral. And if you look at what happens coming into an election is that the markets tend to lock up. You know, we go back to whether it's Biden or Trump getting in, you know, the markets locked up during the summertime. And then what you find is as we get closer to the election, the markets typically resolves itself. Not with Trump, it actually, I think it was November 9th, a few days after the election we saw, or a couple of days after we saw that the market bottom and then rally strongly from that. But from a behavioral perspective, investors don't like uh, uncertainty. And when there's uncertainty, they're just saying, okay, I'm going to decrease, decrease my risk. So from that perspective, I think it actually uh, is, is a worthwhile element to add into an analysis. And, uh, you know, from midterm, so here we are, we're coming up to the midterm election cycle, I, but I don't talk a lot about it. A lot of people will go, oh, is it going to be Democrat or is it going to be a Republican? I think it's just basically that investors just don't like that uncertainty and they get concerned and there's a lot of negative messages coming out from either the bipartisan approach to politics and, uh, or partisan, I should say, approach to politics. And so on midterm election cycle, we, we tend to find that we, the same thing happens. And I think that's going to probably happen here. Right now, we've got a lot of news. Uh, headline ink spilt on you know the uh, Russia-Ukraine war, which is a very unfortunate situation. But you know, at some point, all of a sudden, people are going to realize that we're going to a midterm election, and they're going to say, "Okay, now I'm not sure what's going to happen." <laughs> and 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 so that can actually put it, so on a seasonal basis, heading into elections, we can see weaker summer months, uh, and, and and including midterm elections. We before we got started, we were talking about your your track record of. Uh, and in terms of uh, risk, you mentioned that you were able to achieve that performance in the fund uh, with a substantially lower amount of risk. Can you talk about that and how that works? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So let's just go back to, you know, the, uh, what I call the six month unfavorable period for the stock market. 
which basically runs from you know May 6th to October 27th. Those are the average dates that I've used, a little bit different than everybody else. Everybody talks about the Halloween effect or the sell in May. Uh, so slightly adjusted based upon you know uh, my analysis. And the stock market tends to outperform from late October into early May. It doesn't mean it's 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 in that six month, it tends to outperform the other six months of the year. It doesn't mean the other six months of the year are negative. Um, although long-term, they haven't provided a lot of value as far as that goes. And, and I want to say, and just to get off track just for a second on this uh, as well, in the six-month cycle, you know, it really comes down to, well, what's, what drives that? And that really comes down to liquidity preference in the market. And so a lot of investors want to reduce their risk in the summer months. There's, there's three factors that drive it. Uh, the, the one that everybody refers to really is that, uh, although it's not called it, it's called liquidity preference. And investors just want to have more liquidity coming into the summer months. Uh, and uh, they tend to de-risk their portfolios. And that tends to drive that uh, one aspect. The other one is that in the economic cycle. If you take out the seasonality to the, to the economic data, the economy does have a seasonal cycle that does follow along. And that is in the beginning of the year, it tends to be strong, tends to weaken in the summer months. As we know, Europe takes off with the whole summer, you know, so, um, and then gets back on track as well. And you, you'll find that uh, the stock market mirrors that a little bit um, it, 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 as well. And the other one, the third one would be the analyst expectations. Analysts are notorious for actually being overly optimistic. And so they set their uh, uh, expectations from the bottom up side. Uh, well ahead of uh, individually, they can justify. They say, look, the companies I cover, you know, are all going to do 30% or whatever. Now, that's not possible, of course, but individually, that's how it goes. And at some point during the year, there's a reckoning. And that tends to, by by summer, they start to have to pull back a little bit as well and, and then come back. Uh, and so you tend to find that start to weaken as well. So there is that six-month period. Uh, now I'll get back to answering your question on that. So that's six months period for the, really that uh, uh, more defensive time, I'd say, from May 6th until October 27th, or my average dates. So in that period, we tend to be more defensive. So we're more def uh, more defensive sectors uh, will be in fixed income uh, if it's appropriate as well, and um, as as well. And sometimes we'll actually hold uh, cash as well in between holdings. So our core might be cash, but we'll be going back and forth in the market and rotating back and forth as a strategic position as well. So what we end up with is a bimodal distribution of uh, correlation to the market. And so we're, we tend to be highly uncorrelated to the market in the next six months coming up and more defensive. And we tend to be more correlated to the market from late October into, into May. And as a result, over time, we've seen, you know, a lower standard deviation for the fund versus the overall market when you put those two uh, components together and hence less risk overall. So, Brooke, it seems to me that you are a long biased strategy. <clears throat> Um, but I did read in the perspective that you have the ability to go short. Um, it seems like a long buy strategy in the last decade has been a pretty preferable, uh, use case because you could transition between equities and bonds, depending on, you know, the type of market we were in bonds would float you up when equities were going down this last few months, we've seen a high correlation between bonds and equities going down together. Um, is cash your only solution there for that rotation out or are you actively looking for shorts or would you be actively looking for shorts in periods like 08 or the 2000s? 
Yeah. So we don't want to really do naked net shorts as far as I go. So what we'll do is we'll do pair trades and we have to have a fairly high conviction for it. And it's not a big part of what we do, as, as you mentioned. So, uh, you know, sometimes we'll take a position and, you know, you look at the blotter or the blotter was, we'll take a position of 10% long with Dow Jones and 10% short the small cap sector, you know, in, in a couple of the summer months. Um, as an example, and take those off at the same time. So we do it in a pair trade basis. We'll never be net short the market. That's not what we're really at. We're never going to be really far out as far as the short positions as well. But you're right, it can add value. And in this type of market that we're in now, uh, I think there's more uh, value to be added. We've had this really funny market, really, for the last decade, uh, where the Federal Reserve, okay, the Federal Reserve has been my best friend. Right, because they juiced the market. Right, they they made this crazy market, and it's they've been my worst enemy. Because guess when they do it? They do it in the summer months, that when we tend to be more defensive. They you know they go to Jackson's Hole, <laughs> and then they they come out and make an announcement. And in September the market goes up. Like, hey, come on, guys, girls, you know, like get out there. It's a terrible August though. You should you should have the Fed the Fed <laughs> seasonal pattern. August is tanking, <laughs> and then they come back in September. Yeah. I got a seasonal trigger for it. Uh, well, I just, I, I just, I'm going to write them a letter and say, if you go to Jackson's Hole, go, go in the wintertime. <laughs> yeah. Or give me, yeah, exactly. Or give me a quick shot. You could, let me know when you're going to meet. You yeah. could almost apply that strategy to whenever I go on vacation, the markets drop. So you could, you could factor that in there as yeah. well. Okay. We'll just send you yeah, somebody on staff also as yeah. that. As soon as you take your eye off. So, <laughs> So can, can I ask you as an advisor, um, I've been watching uh, HAC for years. I've been reading Brooks uh, content for years. And it's given the amount of success, because I would say that ETF has is one of the most successful from a sharp ratio perspective that I've seen ever. Um, it's baffling yeah. to me how little uptake it has had in the advisory community in Canada. So understanding that you follow it and, and, and probably use it for clients, can you Tell me your journey in terms of getting exposure to this, how you think about it, and how you articulate it to clients. Uh, well, how I articulate any new position really um, is I go through the process that I take in terms of adding new positions, um, in, just in general. Uh, so when I'm adding new positions, uh, particularly new ETF uh, or more actively managed fund positions, um, I'm I'm going through very much a due diligence process where I'm meeting with the manager and I'm talking to them about, you know, what is it they do? Are they following a disciplined, repeatable process as Brooke has just <laughs> very much outlined for us? Um, is there alpha being provided? What's, you know, what's the risk management side of things? Is, you know, what's the up downside capture? What's been the worst drawdown? You know, what happened, you know, for instance, during black swan events um you know was was that process changed at all um and you know which you could argue um different uh different pluses and minuses to to whatever that answer is um and then from there you know that once i've done that uh kind of screening process they then go on to a watch list where i'm watching them for a period of time before even implementing them into the portfolio um, so it's more it's more so with my clients about when 
you know, when we're putting together the portfolios, describing what that process is, as opposed to breaking down each individual investment, I'm more describing, okay, what is what is the investment philosophy that we're trying to do here? And when adding new positions, how do they fit in uh, in terms of the overall worldview, so to speak? So that's 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 basically that in a nutshell. So when when you articulate when you articulate that to clients, that worldview portion for something like seasonal pattern, where does that fit in in your discussion with clients? I, we want to add this position. Here's a process. But here's why we like this style for this part of your portfolio. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe you can expand on that. Sure. So I would I would put that into I kind of have two two buckets. More of a, a you know passive, more beta type of of bucket where you know I'm a believer that you know there's an element of market return that it's just going to be a product of being in the market. So you just want to be in in something passive, get you broad market exposure the cheapest way possible. And that uh, is a good portion for your portfolio. And then you want to have a more actively managed strategy. So I would view Brooks' um, strategy in that part where I'm wanting to get uh, more of the juice in the portfolio. Um, I call it I call it my tortoise and hare approach, um, you know, slow and steady wins the race. So I've got, you know, the beta side, that's more of the tortoise. And then I'll have more of the alpha side that is, you know, the hare that's going to get you across the finish line, so to speak. So I would, I would put him more in that, that category, definitely. Um, and trying to just get that active management. Um, and a, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish up. Um, I was just going to say that on the active management side of things, I'm also a believer in diversification of management style. So I'll want to have someone in there like Brooke, who's who's dealing more on the seasonal side of things. I might want to have someone in there, you know, value, uh, a value manager, growth manager, momentum manager, what, what have you. I want to have that diversification of manager because they're all going to outperform at different times. They're all going to underperform at different times. And knowing when that is, um, you just don't. Uh, but you want to have smart people in there, um, good, solid managers in there, and have a diver- diversification of them. So they're all doing different things at different times to help on that that overall risk management side of the portfolio. That's great. Love that diversification angle. Big fan as Pierre knows. Um, and yeah. just, I do want to focus in again on seasonality as a, as a value add, when you're talking to clients, you earlier said that an objection has been, well, isn't that market timing? Are there other, any, any other common objections about this specific style that really stands out? And if it does, how do you, um, how do you get over those hurdles? Um, I would. I no, I, I I would say that the only objection that you would ever have to that, uh, from my my perspective as an advisor, from talking to clients, would be just a, a question on market timing. Um, I I don't tend to have clients that, you know, want to have the nitty gritty on every single position, um, as to why they're they're held or not. Um, so I don't have a lot of specific questions on seasonality um, or why I would hold that position in the portfolio uh, because it's more just part of the overall broader strategy. Um, so I would say really, yeah, the only 
the only objection that you might ever come across is a question of is this market timing and and my answer to that is is no <laughs> um yeah quite frankly so i think that may be the part that's a little bit misunderstood how rules-based it actually is you have very strict rules about getting in and getting out if a position's not working you'll get out but you won't not get into it depending on the seasonality you're exploiting those repetitions that occur it's not a random walk but i think you're right pierre um i just i am still like i'm genuinely curious brooke why you're already not like that why is hack not at five billion dollars right now it is absolutely bad that's right that's okay and there's got that's to what be i was asking about just, some, be, just about before we started i was asking okay. so there's got to be something about uh, seasonality let's, let's, people can't let's get come back I, i'm gonna put i'm gonna put kim on the hot seat on this one okay just for fun yeah um you know <laughs> it's, it's a different it's a different fund it really is different you know to answer your question rigo but it's uh some people have trouble placing it in the portfolio. You know, as a portfolio manager yourself, you know, you're talking about the different buckets you have and you have the value bucket and the different buckets. And it's, you know, how do, how do, because it's a different fund, I think some, some, some advisors just say, it doesn't fit within my schema of, of the way I've structured this schema. And they don't go back and re-look re at things and say, hey, maybe I'll put this into alternatives or something. But I think some people, don't have, it just doesn't quite fit, you know, it's around the square peg in the round hole with what they've already defined. I think that's, Kim, you tell me, is, 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 is that uh, what's going on here, you think? Uh, well, I suppose maybe to maybe to some extent, I, I would think it's more that there's still, you know, despite the, the huge amount of growth in ETFs and particularly the huge amount of growth in ETFs on the institutional management side, things that retail investors could learn from, frankly, um, you know, there's still, I think that there's still not enough uptake on the advisor side. There are still a lot of advisors that are just stuck on, we're just going to buy individual bonds and we're just going to buy individual stocks. Um, they don't use alternatives. They don't use ETFs. They don't, you know, so I, th I think that there's still just generally a lot um, less uptake than one would expect at this point in time. <laughs> Um, but adding a new position for anyone um, shouldn't be something that's done, you know, just like that. It should just, it, you know, there should be a process for that advisor for adding to their portfolios and stuff like that. So, you know, if you're managing a big book of business, it can be in your discretionary portfolio manager. Um, you know, it can, you want to make sure that, uh, or, or, or any advisor for that matter, you want to make sure that what you're adding is going to be the right fit and you're going to want to you know somebody's got to get fired too um is the other part so you've got to have room in the portfolio if there's if there's a manager you know if all your managers are doing well um then there's just there's not enough of a of a case to potentially cause a taxable event to sell a position and enter a new one and stuff like that there's got to be a lot of things kind of coming together um so from my my perspective i don't make a lot of uh manager changes to my portfolio um you know it takes takes a while before someone gets uh replaced and it's got to be a it, it's got to make sense it's got to make you know that a performance reason there's got to be um, it's going to make sense from the taxable side of things. There's a there's a number of factors that come into play there. So, I would say, yeah, I say I would say that it's kind of a combination of things. Is it is it is it possibly 
I mean, uh, uh, to your point, Kim, not all your clients want to know every single thing about mm -hmm. an ETF. Um, but is it, is it perhaps, is it hard? Is it, is it either hard to understand or hard to describe? This strategy? Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't view it as something difficult to, to describe if someone was asking you a question on it. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's pretty, yeah. um, pretty, pretty self-explanatory and, and particularly, um, you know, you, you just even have to mention a few of, a few examples, even Brooke gave a number of examples, you know, for instance, with energy, with the, you know, things that, that can make, you know, make logical sense, um, you know, retail, when to buy and exit and that kind of thing. It, 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 when you explain that to someone, um, it, it makes sense. Um, it comes together for that. For that client, this is probably one of the only strategies that uh, the average person knows. He can really intuitively understand. I mean, if you're talking about bond strategies and duration, and like you know, uh, most most investors, you know, um, you know, this isn't something to do on a daily basis, and so they're not really attuned. But if you talk to them about, you know, well, here's the behavior, they get behavior as well. So, Rodrigo, we'll we'll get there. It's just slow right now, and I think that now the Federal Reserve <laughs> is, uh, you know. As as I said, was my worst enemy. I think he they're switching to also a good friend of mine again too, getting back into the natural rhythm to the cycle. So they're not going to be in the next six months at least, uh, you know, quantitative easing or something. So we might see, uh, you know, uh, some more. The reason I say that is from a six month cycle, uh, we haven't seen the differences in the strong six month seasonal cycle from late October to May compared to the other six months. That the, the traditionally there's been a bigger average discrepancy between the two. And that's because the Federal Reserve has been manipulating the markets and juicing the markets, uh, you know, with, with their programs. Um, and, and so they, you know, the Fed put, we can go through all that, but now that's sort of taken off the table, but so I do think we'll see more predominance of, uh, the difference in performance between what I call the favorable six month period from early, from late October to early May and the unfavorable period, which is the other six months. I think that's going to uh, take place again. So once we, we see a few big, uh, you know, differences as far as that goes, maybe we'll see uh, uh, more attraction towards this type of uh, seasonal seasonal besting. I, I would, you know, one thing I would add in oh. there is that, um, one thing I would add in there is that for some investors, you know, they, perhaps understand that this isn't this this isn't necessarily market timing like it's 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 overweighting it's underweighting it's doing certain things at different times uh, it's not as i've said before not completely you know going 100% cash and then trying to trying to time getting back into the market and that kind of thing but if someone understands that idea that there are par parts um, of the year where you want to make some adjustments and changes uh, but perhaps you know your the average retail investor that doesn't have the you know the ability to to do that they're busy working their jobs or or what have you or they don't have the knowledge base or what have you this is an easy way of 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 getting that exposure in in one uh ETF so that's that's a bonus there for sure i think the kind of you know one of the the issues over the last 10 years broke is that in spite of the risk adjusted returns that you've had and many other active managers have asked. <clears throat> as much as we like to think that we're mostly Canadian, I think there's been an, a lot of people being enamored with growth stocks, right? And there's just simply 
astounding what they've accomplished in a 10-year period. And I went back in history, looked at other periods before inflation starts to hit. And what we found is periods before inflation tend to be periods where there's benign inflation and persistent growth for a prolonged period of time. The, The marketplace seems to feel like there's visibility and therefore they're willing to fund these long duration growth stock projects at any price. And you'll see like all the money available in the market just kind of concentrate in a few big winners that everybody wants to invest in. And diversification and active management and risk management becomes a secondary issue, right? So, and you've, you've literally launched it as this period of benign inflation and persistent growth began. I'm really excited to see not, not only what your ETF will be able to do in this next period once we have, once inflation goes above 5% historically, it starts breaking so many aspects of different types of markets that you get dispersion, you get opportunities that we, we haven't seen before. Yeah. And so my view is that we're going to see a period where active <clears throat> management will come back alive, whether it's stock selection, sector rotation, asset class selection. And the fact that you've got a 10-year track record in a really unfavorable market regime is going to just work in your favor. I, I, I think I think that's now is the time. I mean, look at this year. This year you've done a phenomenal job, right? Pretty flat to, yeah, to positive yeah. for the year while the market's been chaotic. I, 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 I agree. I mean, it's uh, in this market, it's been this really unique market where it's gotten narrower and narrower. There's been five stocks driving it. And, you know, when you have to, whatever strategy you've got, you know, unless it's called a five stock strategy, um, you know, over the last you know, 10, 12 years, um, it's, been a, it's been a difficult go from that perspective. But now th- that regime is changing with rising rates. That's, and you're right, uh, rising inflation, rising rates is going to break that. And so we're going to start to see value, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, do better for lo- over longer periods of time. So for instance, value has a seasonality to it and, you know, but it hasn't performed as well as it should, whereas growth and its seasonality has done extremely well. Uh, and it's persisted even outside of its seasonality as well. I was just writing a report recently and showing the technology stocks. And the technology stocks, you know, are, you know, there's a lot of media attention to the fact that they're, you know, uh, related to the uh, interest rates. And, you know, if interest rates go up, they tend to underperform. And when they go down, they tend to outperform. But, Rodrigo, you know, if you go back and take a look, you know, in 2014, 15, 16, you know, we had interest rates rising and technology stocks just going up, you know, and a few stocks. And this was part of this monopolization, higher margins going towards these companies. And it was a really, and I think that's more of a unique time than anything else. And it was being funded by falling interest rates through all this previously. So we had some carryover from that. But I think we're going to see uh, it's not just going to be a growth market. I mean, it's been a tough go for advisors because, you know, you, you, with being in your, they say, oh, let's go overseas. Let's add this, you know, let's, ha- let's be diversified. And uh, in the end, the S&P 500 has been, you know, five stocks and has been. It has absolutely not paid to be diversified. Yeah. And, 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 we, and, we, and, and, you know, you're, you're saying diversified makes sense. And it's like, okay, well, diversified S&P 500, which is really the, the a few stocks. But I think that, I think that year is changing. And, you know, uh, when we see growth stocks underperforming now, and as you say, the cost of actually funding with long-term uh, investments and whatnot is going to be a bit more difficult. It will start to actually have the other segments give more chance to outperform. And that's going to help with seasonality because what you'll find is, and we're finding this now, 
uh, we're finding that values outperforming in its strong seasonal period, financials outperforming in its strong seasonal period, the small caps as well. So they're, they're given more of a chance, whereas before it was just, they're just being so dominated. I will say the one thing is we do pay attention to is just the overall shift. Some of the, uh, some of the uh, uh, sectors have been out, started their strong seasonal period performance a little bit early as, as well, uh, you know, the cyclicals and whatnot. But uh, yeah, no, I'm excited coming up because I think we're, we're past this era of just, just growth and just a few stocks. I think it's, it's a lot. It's, uh, and, and I think seasonality will do extremely well in this environment. Brooke, what, what are some examples of seasonal trends that have, like, what are some examples that you can think of that have reinforced key seasonal trends, even when they weren't or did not seem to be apparent? Yeah, that's always a tough one because, you know, you're out of a position and then you're coming up to the seasonal trend and you go, okay, you know, energy's not going to work this year or something. And you're in the back of your mind, but you have to try and displace that. Um, as an example, bonds, government bonds. I mean, we're not, we don't own any government bonds right now because they're not in the strong seasonal period, but we're coming up to the period where they tend to actually start to perform well and particularly in August. So, uh, in that case, and I'm not a big fan of bonds, you know, like it's not something I'm in love with, but it doesn't matter if I like them or not, <laughs> they're an investment and they're part of the investment spectrum. And we're just going in and renting seasonal space and that's all we're doing. So. It, it cannot seem apparent sometimes because they're getting crushed. And so right now, uh, government bonds uh, would be one sector of the market, yeah. broad investment market. You'd say like, oh, yeah, like really? Uh, but that doesn't mean we don't do it and, and we don't take a position in it. And so we'll actually start to use technicals to actually start taking positions at appropriate times on sell-offs and whatnot. And we'll leg in. And we'll look at some of the relative strength momentum indicators to actually determine if we should add to the position. But even so, even if it's not apparent, or even if we don't like it, doesn't uh, unless it's technically broken or breaking down uh, at the time, we'll wait for better technical conditions to enter into something. But it's just because it's not apparent doesn't mean it's it's not a, a, a good investment. And sometimes when it's really apparent, it's it's too late anyhow. Yeah. So with. Um... Liquid also, aside from the maximums that they they, they have, uh, do you have any constraints in terms of the portfolio or anything like that outside of that? So, you know, we try and position the portfolio really as being really blue chip core type of, you know, no real surprises, you know. Um, so we don't want to have huge leverage in the portfolio and we don't want to be, you know, net naked short and uh, th that type of approach uh, from that. So... Our own, you know, internal mandates tend to be a lot more conservative about what we do and how we and how we actually operate the fund because we just want this to be something where somebody picks up the portfolio and goes, "Yeah, I get that. That looks. This is this is uh, this makes sense to me. This isn't something crazy. We got all these uh, short positions or you know options or something of that nature that, you know, and that those are all fine instruments. But the way we're trying to position the portfolio is is something that uh, people can say, "Yeah, no, I understand what's going on in that portfolio." So if you were placing it into a portfolio for a retail investor, uh, you would view it as a core holding or a, more of a satellite holding, or how would you, how would you personally view it? Uh, uh, that's the question. How would I, pr <laughs> <laughs> each firm's different, of course, right? You'll find them, some will say liquid alt and, uh, mm -hmm. and whatnot, as far as the classification goes. And, and sometimes you have to look at the way the funds operate and its performance relative to its actual 
the way I think about it is more of a core growth position. That's the way I think about it. You know, some firms don't classify it as such, but you know, that's based upon the risk metrics of how we've operated in the past. That's the way I see it. On a longer term basis, how does hack behave versus let's say the S and P or the, or the TSX? Okay. So first of all, we're, we're agnostic between the two markets, really between Canada and the U S yeah. uh, from a sector perspective, we tend to find more opportunities from the sectors in the U S markets, uh, just because of the way the markets, uh, uh, you know, the constituents in the market, but, uh, we'll, sometimes we'll be on a seasonal basis. As an example, I can tell you that on average or long-term in the fourth quarter of the year, it's the U S market that tends to outperform. Um, and that's, well, why? And that comes down to the, the seasonality of the constituents, the sectors of the market. For instance, you know, the energy sector tends not to perform well in the fourth quarter of the year, um, you know, from a seasonal perspective, and that tends to be a larger part of the Canadian market. So uh, on a broad market perspective, these S&P 500 tends to be a better place to be. And so consequently, HAC has actually um, had more positions substantially skewed towards the U.S. market compared to the Canadian market. We did have uh, Canadian bank positions uh, in the portfolio as well at the time. Uh, but then we got into um, January and that totally flipped. And so we looked at the seasonalities and also took, took a lot of technicals and took the broad market position and basically deweighted the S&P 500 substantially and increased the Canadian uh, market. So so we're agnostic between the two markets. Uh, so we're not correlated more to one or the other, uh, per se, right. uh, as far as that goes. And as far as the bond market goes, because we're out of the bond market, you know, for a substantial part of the year, we're not really correlated to that at all. Um, and so it really comes down to, uh, you know, and, and I tell advisors and, you know, try to place this in a portfolio, you know, what I was talking about earlier with Kim and saying, this really is a multi-asset class fund. So we were talking about diversification right. earlier, although it's seasonal investing it's an active management approach in seasonal investing, because we're actually going across asset classes, stocks, bonds, commodities, you know, we're providing that extra layer of diversification itself as well. So uh, we tend to actually, you know, decrease the correlation to the markets because we're using extra uh, asset right. classes as well. So it's not only from a time perspective, but it's also from a asset uh, class classification and, and what we can invest in that we can actually provide greater diversification and therefore less correlation overall. Yeah. So I, what you're saying is it's impossible to make an apples to apples comparison. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, abs absolutely. Because yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, and people say, well, you know, yeah, how do you, how do you benchmark the, 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 the approach of the fund? But, but that, that's a hard one because it's sometimes the DSX, sometimes it's the S&P 500, yeah. sometimes it's bonds and sometimes it's different sectors of the market. So it becomes a little bit different from that perspective. There's no simple, easy answer to that really. But that's, but that's the beauty of it because it actually, by doing yeah. what we do, we can actually provide less correlation and great diversification rather than just say, oh, we want to be uh, benchmarked against something and, and lose all, all that value itself. Yeah, it behaves differently than, right. it's, than, it's, than the other asset classes. It, it provides an alternate stream of return. Yeah. Like, yeah, it seems to me that it's a strategy, much like many multi-asset strategies that are conditionally correlated to 
any single market, right? So the other thing is, mm -hmm. is it correlated to X? Well, sometimes it's correlated to gold and silver. Sometimes it's correlated to the healthcare uh, sector. Sometimes it's correlated to SPY or uh, HXT or, you know, the Canadian SP 60. So it's this idea of having a zero correlation all the time, oftentimes breeds a little discomfort. From a multi-asset perspective, being able to be in the right asset class at the right time that where investors can feel like they're participating in what they know. I think I looked at your correlation historically, and it's something like 0.6 uh, to the SPY, right? And that is over a long period of time. But in any given time, it could be zero correlation, negative correlation, or positive, right? Um, so right. It, it, that's another reason why probably yeah, that, that was difficult to put in a box, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, but as I said, that's, you know, the fact that it's uh, diversified like that across asset classes provides a benefit, but it makes it a little bit harder to make comparisons. That's all. Yeah. So is there, do you have a favorite sort of label that you would give it? You know, how would you categorize? I, I, I don't want to make the mistake of calling it an alternative or a liquid alt, um, although it, it, could, it could be categorized that way by some. But if it's not, I don't want to call it something it's yeah. not. So it's often classified, it is often cla classified as that. But as I said earlier, yeah. I think it's more akin to a, a growth strategy over time. Although it's got a whole bunch of extra benefits yeah. that, that we've discussed. But just from a simplicity standpoint, um, if you had to skew it and say, just keep it simple, I would say that that's, that's really what I would, I would say this. I mean, we could argue about it because it can do things like, you know, pair trades and stuff. That's more liquid all, but I, that just takes it so far away from what its real benefits yeah. are and where it, what it can be compared to with others. I think I just want to help advisors to understand, you know, where, where it fits, how it fits, how they can, you know, put it to use. Cause it's, it's unbelievable the way, the way it's actually, you know, the way you've run it, the way it's performed, it's got an incredible track record. So trying to be careful not to uh, say anything that, that, that oh, can get no, flagged it's, it's, yeah, it's here, but. It's all good. So, Brooke, um, your 10, uh, 10x lever derivatives option taking strategy <laughs> that you're putting together right now. Explain that to the average investor. Sure. Yeah. What are you What are you not telling us? <laughs> <laughs> no, clearly this. What so, What is interesting about this product is you can you you're basically doing it like the underlying is mostly just exchange traded funds, right? You're just rotating from sector to sector from that perspective. And, um, and so it's like you said, it's accessible even after you x-ray the portfolio. Yeah, you know what, and, and, and we actually have the capability to use stocks, by the way, in the fund. Um, and we, we could, and we have in the past a little bit, a long time ago we did, uh, but really uh, we don't find a lot of benefit for that. So if we can't get representation for an ETF, then we'll, you know, we can, we'll go in, we could, let's say for instance, in the fertilizer space or something, we could go buy fertilizer stocks themselves. Uh, but if you want to go in and say, oh, I want to go into materials in the States and, you know, it's 70% chemicals and, and whatnot. Um, but if you start, because we're only there for three months, typically on, on, on an investment, um, you know, it doesn't make sense to go in and buy, you know, individual five or six stocks in the sector because we're going to hold multi-sectors. We don't over-optimize in the portfolio either. We don't go, oh, gold tends to do well this time of the year, 100% gold. Let's go. <laughs> That's not what we do. We'll try to, to actually diversify within our seasonality as much as we can as well and say, ah, you know, here we've got, you know, defensive sector, we've got cyclical sector, these both in our seasonal periods uh, or a growth sector, whatever it is. 
So we diversify as much as possible. We actually have caps on, on what we do. So we won't actually say, oh, gold or 100%. That's not the way we have, you know, we'll target, we have targets for major sectors and minor sectors are much less. And, you know, we can overweight within our targets as well. Uh, but we definitely try and stay with. Is that based on, on historical volatility? Is that the, the max caps and weightings? Or yeah, we just don't want do to you, get away. How do you manage the sector yeah, we don't want to get away too far from, you know, having a diversified strategy. So we say, oh, we think the technology is great. We're going to go 50% in technology. It's just too far big of a bet. And that's not what advisors, you know, should be doing either, saying 50% technology, 50% gold. And uh, because there is value in, in trying to diversify and control risk. It's all about controlling risk. It's managing the risk on that um, perspective. And, and so... You know, we'll take a larger position. Let's, here's an example for that. So Canadian banks, we took a position uh, back in uh, the autumn, did well with the position. Uh, we actually overweighted Canadian banks. So our target for large sectors typically that we'll take a position in, like Canadian banks is considered a major sector. So our target there uh, would be uh, 10%. Uh, we can go up to uh, as high as 20% as if we have to. In a major sector, like a biotech sector, we're never going to do that. Our target's like 5%. And, you know, we could go up to 10% and certain exceptions. But once we start to overweight, we have to control that even more um, with a certain stops. So we were in the Canadian banks. We were doing well with them. They started to underperform in January. They started to get re-rated. And so we started to get out of our position quite fast and bring it back down to you know, 10%. And then actually exit the position well before the seasonal period finished just because of its price momentum uh, was, was actually deteriorating as well. So we manage the risk even within our positions. And if we overweight, we're more cognizant of actually start to ex exiting a position early if we, if we have to, just to control that risk. And as we get closer to the end of a seasonal period, because we know we have to be out by a certain time, we're more, uh, you know, we're saying, well, we've got to be out by this date, even with uh, price momentum extensions. And if, so we'll actually start to exit, start reducing a position ahead of time, typically, as soon as it starts to underperform. You know, I was just reflecting on your comments with the risk management and thinking about how that might fit with advisors. And with advisors, so much of the risk management is trying to make sure that portfolios uh, minimize the volatility as much as possible because it, it, it boils down to um, managing your client emotions and expectations and making sure that they're doing the right things <laughs> and not doing the wrong things at the wrong time. Uh, so the risk management and the, and the limited volatility that you have uh, makes that a perfect fit for that, for advisors, for trying to find a fit in their portfolios. Just, you know, purely boiling down to that uh, emotional managing client expectations and, and, and downside risk in the portfolio. Yeah, I mean, I think that's important. So you, you, you it helps to remove the emotion <laughs> from from that side, absolutely for sure. But it just also from a return perspective will provide you know steadier returns over time. So yes, you can hit it out of the park once in a while, but and it's probably going to be on a smaller position. But you're not going to say, oh, let's go all natural gas or something, and 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 take a big bet and then get clobbered from it and really get hurt. So it's it's really comes down to just also the risk return profile, um, and you're right; it does transfer back to emotion in the end as well. 
Well, at the end of the day, the less volatility you have, the more likely you are to outperform over the long term anyway. Just the mathematics of it dictate that. So I think it's a, a great fit, fit for that. Yeah, absolutely. Brooke, how's the tax efficiency managed in the fund? Well, first of all, ETFs are, are, are great vehicles for tax efficiency just because of their structure. And you right. know, Horizons actually has a really good structure as well. We're not in their corporate structure, but they've got this great structure for ETFs as well. But just a way that an ETF can bring back costs and put it back in the fund. Uh, so we found that uh, although it's an extremely high turnover fund, okay, so it does have a high turnover, the tax efficiency has actually been very, very good because of the way it's actually uh, handled the costs themselves over time. And one question, uh, Brooke, about, so you created something that's pretty fantastic. You have your book that comes out um, every year. You're updating it uh, every year. How's research work for you on a seasonal rotation ETF or just seasonality generally? How are you iterating year after year within this space? Yeah, I mean, I th my, my philosophy in life is either moving forward or you're moving backwards. Right. You've got to be. And I, I, I truly believe and that's that's not just about investments. That's less life. You've got to be moving forward um, at all times. So that's actually one of the reasons why I read the book um, as well. And I'm always trying to do something new. If you take a look at the, how the fund has developed since it first came out in 2009, you know, we've we've added so many more strategies in the fund itself. So every year I have to go through this, you know, cathartic process of reexamining you know, all the different strategies and saying, okay, are there any additional unrelated strategies that can add some benefit to this? You know, and so we've added more fixed income strategies, more commodity strategies over time, uh, as, as an example. And, uh, you know, so we, we, we built up that, that benefit over time. And that's really come from developing the, you know, doing the research, diving into it. And that's, that's part of what I really love. It's like, you know, unlocking a puzzle basically. Um, you know, and, and really getting into understanding what it is. And, and so that's what I love it. And my, the book really forces me to go through this uh, big experience and, and, and looking at re-examining all the different seasonal uh, aspects and saying, okay, now I've got to take a look and say, are there any others that can make sense that I have to do some research on? And you, you look at a bunch and you go, no, that doesn't make any sense. I can't find the, the causational factor or whatever it is. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the fund has benefited because of the process that I go through every year. And it happens during the year as well, of course. And, and we, we will extend that. But that's a real focus point for me is writing the book, adding the new strategies, re-examining it, and uh, redeveloping it as well. And, and yeah, I think it's outside the book as well. I've got some other plans as far as marketing goes and to, to really uh, case, you know, put up the seasonal strategy so everybody can see a lot more in the benefits and with the technical analysis on a marketing perspective over time. I, I do my own marketing as well, um, you know, as, uh, with Horizons, of course, but, you know, I'll shoot the videos and, and, and whatnot. Uh, but, but I really want to go back and constantly go back once in a while and say, okay, I have to go take a look and say, is this, I, this is really exciting. I want to take a look at this development that's taking place in the markets. You know, but here's an example. You know, I've written about this before in the past. You know, today we've talked about what what happens when, you know, uh, sectors in a strong seasonal period. We've talked about the positive aspects. But what, one of the things I've written about and I spent more time on over the last couple of years is what happens when this, 
seasonal strategy is performing well outside of the seasonal period. What does that mean? Like, what's that telling you? And so here's an excellent example. Let's go back to December 2021, a few months ago, right? The stock market was moving higher. S&P 500 was going up. Some volatility, of course, in the month, but still higher. Interest rates were going up. And you saw the defensive sectors outperform. You saw utilities, healthcare, consumer staples, the REITs outperform, all of them. Like, that's kind of crazy. So what's that telling you? And that's a behavioral phenomenon for that to take place. It was telling you that the investors wanted to stay invested in the markets. And these sectors, that this is not their strong seasonal period. So this is not typical. And on top of that, with rising interest rates, this is this saying something. And what it was telling us was the investors wanted to stay invested in the markets, but they were very concerned about valuation and the market was susceptible to a pullback. And then we saw that take place. And we, we saw that in January, the market pulled back lower. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. And the other phenomenon that I'd be measuring too is when the def defensive sectors outperform when they're not supposed to, like in this time of the year, you tend to find that that's actually an indication that there's not large opportunities for a substantial S&P 500 rally. So well, all of a sudden we switch on to a risk on mode where we run for two months or three months and we, we see this, you know, uh, melt up high. When the defensives are outperforming when they shouldn't be, it's saying, no, no, we're going to have a few days every so often where you're going to see that rally take place. You know, everybody piles back into tech with the dips. Um, but that's, it's saying that's not the characteristic, the, the profile of this market is not large gains and perhaps and not necessarily a correction ahead. So, uh, that's some of the areas that I've actually been concentrating on too, is looking at sectors of the market performing when they shouldn't be doing well and what the messages are that they're sending right. as well. What the and pattern that you might two. be able to discern from that. Yeah, exactly. Have you... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask um, kind of along this lines, have you found any uh, impact on sort of the rise of the meme investor and, and that sort of thing, uh, the AMCs and GameStops and, and all of that, having any kind of influence on seasonality at all or no? I, I, I wouldn't say that they've had an impact on seasonality. They, they've been a defining characteristic of the markets. You know, mm -hmm. you're buying a meme for you know, $2.93 million from Jack Dorsey one year and it's next year you're selling it or being offered $39,000, <laughs> you, know, you know, it's kind of crazy times, um, not to take away from NFTs, but, um, you know, all that stuff on the sidelines, to me, that's noise. And I'm not saying it's not valid. It's mm -hmm. saying something it's talking about, you know, you've got, you know, these are gamma trades that are really being pushed around by options, but that's not what I do. You know, that's, I focus on what I do and. I think these are more characteristics of what's taking place in this this market right now. I guess what I was meaning is more so has it impacted kind of any of the behavioral finance side of things that ultimately translates into down the road? Yeah, I guess the only one I could really point to perhaps would be uh, Bitcoin, uh, mm. you know, being a, a, a risk sink or counter alternative investment sink uh, compared to gold, I think had an impact for a while. Uh, but... You know, I, I'm a believer everything comes out in the wash. I'm not, that's, this is not a, a comment on Bitcoin, but I think that gold will fulfill its ultimate role and value uh, over the long term based upon its value. So there's going to be 
different aspects along the way. That'd be the only one, Kim, that I've seen really uh, from that perspective, mm-hmm. as far as throwing out the seasonality goes uh, or, when, you know, or suppressing price or whatever. I'd say that's the, the only one that I could really argue about. Do you see this uh, current um, inflationary pressure that we're, we're uh, reacting to now? Have you seen any other distortions take place as a result of inflation? Yeah. Okay. So let me, let me handle that question. And I want to come back and make a comment that addresses uh, a question from Rodrigo a little bit earlier as well. So the inflation actually, actually uh, is more, we've gone through this period of benign inflation. And, you know, I go back and I take a look at from a sector basis, I go back and really 25 to 30 years and that, even that we've gone through 40 years of de- define, you know, declining in inflation, declining interest rates. So we could argue that you know, it's not even there a robust enough uh, uh, sector analysis, but that's the data set that we have to work with. But I can, t- you know, on the market composition on the sectors, uh, if you take a look, most of the sectors, when you break them down, you do the, you know, the 11 gig sectors, which they are now, uh, you know, they really are skewed to uh, not, not growth. You know, you've really got, if you want to classify them as growth, you got technology, communication yeah. services, and consumer discretionary. That's three out of 11. So they've been dominating the market. So inflation, when it comes back, really can help out with the cyclical sectors. And I think also as well on the counter trend rallies on the defensive. So I think that that makeup of the markets can actually uh, change. It's going to be, it's, this is, inflation is beneficial towards the seasonal sectors of the market. And I think this is actually going to bring back the, well, the magnitude of difference between the sector performance. So the sector performance in the in the uh, seasonal periods it has worked, but not as large as it has in the past because of this benign inflation environment skewed towards growth. Um, and I, I want to bring up another comment too, and saying, you know, what have you done? Like, how how's this growing over time? You know, as far as the, the research and how, how do we add value? The one thing I've done in my book in the last couple of years is actually include some macro economic uh data because really this is a funny market you know like you know back in the 1990s as i mentioned earlier you know it was all about fundamentals and pe's and everything else and then we moved to this uh technical analysis and it became momentum it was remember momentum was a big play for for a while and um yeah so we and now it's macros if you look at what's driving technology versus you know consumer staples or whatever it is it's interest rates and inflation and, you know, balance, the Fed's balance sheet. We got, we're in the earnings season and the earnings aren't moving the markets like they did before. You know, uh, maybe that, maybe I, 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 I get called out on this tomorrow. There's a few really strong earnings and the market rockets up, you know, the S&P 500 and S 100 points or something. But, you know, we're seeing the market still reacting, but not nearly as much to, to earnings. It's more about the macro factors. And we're really concerned about what's happening with inflation. And the Fed, and sure, the earnings are there. Uh, so because of the heightened interest in macro, I've actually gone and taken a look at some of the macro stuff and uh, did some seasonal seasonal analysis around that, for instance, inflation expectations. And I've, I've actually done a couple of articles, I think a couple of videos, uh, sort of blurs together a little bit, uh, but on you know inflation expectations is, and the seasonality to it as well. Um, so that's another aspect I've added. Now, we don't, we're not going to go in there, Rodrigo, and say, oh, you know, we're going to start doing uh, forward, do we need a five-year, five-year swaps or something like that? That's not why I do this. It's more to say, what's, how would that translate back into 
the sectors that we actually trade in and, and as far as that goes. And what extra information is that going to provide us indirectly? Yeah, that's awesome. I love Excellent. that. I think we, we are definitely in that uh, unique macro space where in the past, in the past 10 years, it's been Fed-driven. Now it's going to be inflation and Fed-driven. So you, you definitely at least need to have an, a view before you do anything else with the um, rest of your assets. So I like the direction, Brooke. Thank you so much. First of all, thank you so much. That was a, a fascinating discussion. And uh, where, where can people find you? What's the easiest way to find you? Your, your book? Um, you have a Twitter handle on social yeah, media? Yeah, I'm on social media as well, Twitter and uh, LinkedIn as well. Also, too, on the Horizons uh, ETFs webpage as well, there is information about AJC uh, directly as well. And also, too, the, my newsletter is written, uh, I, I publish that through the Alpha Mountain website, uh, which can be found there as well at the same time. Perfect. All right. We'll, we'll be sure to put that in the show notes. Brooke, wow. Thank you so much. We want to see the money roll in to go with the story because your yeah, chart is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what? It's been great today. Uh, thank you very much, guys, because, you know, it's been a great conversation. It's, uh, uh, you know, I like it when it's conversational. You know, like mm -hmm. I'll do these once in a while and it's like, okay, I'm just talking and I can just keep talking, but I prefer it to be conversational. <laughs> so, and thanks, Kim, for the, uh, you know, the advisor side a little bit too, which helped around that a little bit. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely great to have you, Kim. Mm -hmm.